It's time for Cadillac on Call on News Radio 610 KONA. It's your chance to learn valuable health information right here in our community. Now, the host of Cadillac on Call, here's Jim Hall. Hi, and welcome to Cadillac on Call, presented by Cadillac Foundation. Each week, we are here to address the latest health and medical news in our area. And for the past nine months, much of that time has been devoted to the COVID-19 pandemic. That, again, will be our focus this evening as we enter a dangerous period with the virus, rapidly rising case counts, increased deaths, and hospitalizations. We'll hear from a Cadillac ICU nurse who is on the front lines caring for patients, plus check in with the Benton Franklin Health District. We'll also visit with leaders from Cadillac's Community Health Division to see how it is staying connected with members of their many health-related support groups. A lot to cover, so let's get right to the phones with the Communicable Disease Program Manager with the Benton Franklin Health District, Heather Hill. Good evening, Heather. And I know the latest news that we're just seeing uh, come out around the Tri-Cities area is some adjustments that Dr. Person has made regarding uh, some of the secondary school education. What can you share with us on that, first of all? Sure, Jim. You know, we've spent a fair amount of time not only talking about it here at the health district, but with our peers across the state and certainly a lot of conversation with the school districts themselves. And um, as you mentioned, there has been a you know, uh, some information come out that Dr. Person is recommending a pause for uh, secondary schools, opening up middle and secondary schools. And the reason is we look at the case rates, and I think that's the important thing to look at, is over the last month, we've just seen an explosion of COVID in our community. When we look at new cases per day, one month ago, we had about 40 new cases per day. We're now at 127 new cases per day. Uh, when we look at our testing centers and how many, what percent of those tests being collected actually test positive, a month ago it was 8%. We're already up to 18% of those are positive now. So we're seeing a, 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 a real explosion in, in our case rate locally. And I think one of the things that certainly concern us is when we look at the disease activity among the 19 or the, 9, the 10 to 19 year olds, it's um, 3.5 times higher than the disease rate of the five to nine year olds. And the five to nine year olds are already back in school. And so seeing that the case rate in that middle school, high school age group is is suddenly increasing a bit as well, we need to take a serious look at, at just what is the best recommendation for that age group. So if I'm understanding everything correctly, the middle and high school uh, in the main areas of the Tri-City schools have not made those decisions anyway. Most likely they were going to be after the first of the year at a minimum. So that has now been on put on pause. The elementary schools that have gotten underway, there will be no change to those, mostly the pre-K through K-5, correct? Right, it's still up to each individual school district what they choose to do, but um, as you mentioned, uh, there has been a suggestion at, at pausing right now. Let's see what we can do with our, our case rates. We've seen the community come together before. We look back to the summer at the extreme high case rates we had back then, and we were able to turn it around, and we know that the community can do the same thing now. Our frustration is 
majority of the outbreaks that we're seeing that are leading to these high case rates are really in people's private lives. We've had the wedding that we hear about on the news is directly affecting cases in our community. We've had large business gatherings that have resulted in outbreaks. And we're still reaping the effects of, of the Halloween holiday time because parties happened, people got infected, and they infected more people who infected more people, and it just continues to transmit on and on and on in the community. So heading into Thanksgiving and then on into Christmas, it's so extremely important that our community think seriously about what direction we want to see this um, disease burden go. It's, it's affecting our businesses, it's affecting our kids, and it's really up to us and what we choose to do in our personal life that is affecting the business life. And if we want to see this turnaround, then we've got to take a serious responsibility for what we do in our personal life. And that's where we're recommending keep your, your size down to a minimum, five people or the people that live immediately in your household, those that live daily together. And I know that's going to be hard at Thanksgiving, but it is one of the most important things we can do to, to turn this data around and start seeing that curve start to dip back down again, because right now it's just continuing to go up, unfortunately. You mentioned the word frustration, and I know, uh, I guess I could use the same word, too, because we could probably go back to programs that we have been doing since March and run the same interviews and the same sound bites, and especially preparing for the fall, the comments that, okay, we've got to be prepared for this, you know, with this second wave and the temperatures getting colder and the onset of the flu and all of that, but yet here it is. Right, right. And... You know, this is a, a time of year people start heading indoors. Again, looking at the schools and the sports, we're seeing some definite outbreak activity within the, the sports world. And most of the sports now are, are conducted inside buildings where ventilation is different. There's a, a greater likelihood of transmission. Your activities are happening indoors. It's getting cold outside. And all of that is going to negatively affect our case rates. And so it even increases more the need for us to be vigilant and put in all of those mitigation effects that we've really tried to encourage. You know, social distancing, wearing your face coverings, wash your hands, using hand sanitizer, and keeping the number of people you're with to, to an absolute minimum. And I don't want to alarm people, but I can give them the number. I think we hit 250,000 deaths in our country either today or yesterday. Um, but the the bottom line is, if you don't believe it, look at the numbers, right? Right. And, you know, our concern is, sure, the majority of our cases right now are, are in the young adult, the, you know, 20 to 39 age group. But we know that what comes after that is we'll, we expect to see, unfortunately, more deaths in the population that it's going to severely affect. And that's our elderly population and the people with, you know, the, the conditions that put them at risk for bad outcomes if they catch COVID. So, yeah, young adults, healthy people can do quite fine with COVID, but it's, it's those higher-risk people that it, 
it oftentimes does not end well for them. Our next segment, we're going to visit with an ICU nurse from Catholic who we spoke with back in July on this very topic. I'd like you to take maybe 30 seconds of your final time and just that takeaway message that that we all need to really, I guess, rise up and and renew our commitment to beating this. You're exactly right, Jim. It's not just about me, the individual in my community. It is about doing what's best for everybody in our community because it's for our businesses, it's for our kids in school. And then again, I look at our hospital workers. I'm a nurse. I used to work in the hospital. It's a struggle. These hospital workers have been working the front line for months and months. And here we are facing it again. And we just really, really need the community to step up, do what they did in July, and let's get these numbers turned back around. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District. Thanks, as always, for taking some time to get us the latest perspective on COVID-19 in our community, and I'm sure we'll talk again soon. Heather Hill with the Benton Franklin Health District, back with more of Cadillac on Call right after this. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610 KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. Welcome back to the program. I'm going to begin this segment with quoting from an article that was written back in July. And it starts, we are tired. I have been an intensive care unit nurse for 20 years, and my colleagues and I are weary from the devastating impact COVID has taken on patients. At one point on one of my shifts, three people died of COVID. I've never had three people die in one shift of anything before. And this was COVID. It took three lives that day. That's in a 12-hour shift. Those are the words of Brad Pryor, an intensive care unit nurse at Cadillac, written on July 3rd, 2020. We're fortunate to have Brad Pryor join us by phone tonight as he gets ready to go back to work tomorrow in the intensive care unit at Cadillac. Brad, I guess, is it deja vu all over again? Yes, it is. <laughs> it's it's hard to deal with. It's it's still exhausting, you know. Um. We don't have as many people dying because I think we're getting better at treating COVID. So I think things have improved in that way, but we still have the the volume of patients. You know, we still got a lot of sick people in the hospital. It it appears to be going up. And that's the key, the number of hospitalizations. And the problem is we're getting into our busy season anyway because of flu and other, you know, diseases this time of year. We're normally full this time of year. Now we're over full because of COVID. I was going to mention statistically, I think uh, right about the time you joined us uh, back in July, one day Cadillac had 59 patients hospitalized, and I know it's been in the 20s. So not the good news, not nearly as high back then, but obviously with the case rates we're seeing in the community and obviously hospitalizations inching back up at a time in the hospital when they're traditionally busy anyway, it's it's a dangerous mix, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, you know, um, the problem there is for families. If we don't have enough beds, where do the patients go? I mean, and there's not enough beds. Where are, where are we, I guess, 
you touched on the types of patients that you're seeing, thankfully not as many needing intensive care unit care, and you mentioned that uh, the way that the, the patients are cared for, maybe it's they're younger and they're not quite as sick, but they still need hospitalization. So if you need to be hospitalized with COVID, you're still pretty sick, regardless of whether or not you end up in an ICU. Yes, yes. A lot of people are on uh, what they call high-flow nasal cannula, which is a lot of oxygen just to keep them going. And that actually, you know, those people we don't have in the ICU anymore. Those are on other floors. But, you know, those people appear to be doing pretty well. The bad part is if you do get uh, put on a ventilator, you're in serious trouble. And we still have, you know, a hard time, you know, keeping those folks alive. I remember visiting with you back in July, and one of the and we alluded to it from the the words that you had shared back then is we're tired. How are you doing these months later? I know you know obviously you don't work seven days a week, but I know it's taking its toll. But I mean, do you do you just that's what I do? Is that is that the the attitude you have to take you and your teammates? So whether you're in the ICU or you're wherever you work within the hospital setting. Yeah, I mean, this is that's my job, you know, but it's still very hard, not only physically, but emotionally to, to watch it go on and on and on. It's like, you know, there's no light at the end of the tunnel. Yeah, now they've come up with vaccines that are hopefully going to work. But even then, we're, the light at the end of the tunnel is June, from what I'm hearing. So, you know, it's, it's it weighs a lot on everybody and we all have a hard time with it. So what I remember you you were talking about the wins uh, when we visited in July you you've had to uh, had some wins I know you talk about that the people are recovering and and what has that meant to you as you touched about and that's your job but I know it's also to be a nurse and to be a healthcare clinician it's a calling Yeah and it's it's extremely satisfying to see somebody come off the ventilator you know and they usually spend a couple more days with us and then we, you know, put them in a room downstairs for a while after that. But it's really satisfying to see them actually get wheeled out in the wheelchair and, and know they've gotten better because of what we've done. We, you know, we've saved a life, and that's amazing. It's a great feeling. And honestly, I'd like to say we could do it more. But, yeah, people are still dying from this disease. If you would, and I don't, I don't want to venture into all of the restrictions that are being placed on on people, or not only here but across the country. But from a frontline caregiver standpoint, obviously we have Thanksgiving and Christmas, the holiday season coming up, um, and, and and we're all being advised to make some sacrifices in our family planning for these celebrations. From someone in your view, I guess, how would you approach that, and, and what is your advice to people? Well, I can tell you, we've already canceled Thanksgiving with my in-laws. You know, they are elderly, and it's just not work, worth the risk because, you know, of course, I'm exposed every day at work, so it's hard to say if I have it or don't have it. So we've canceled just to be safe. Until there's a vaccine, I, I think Christmas and Thanksgiving just ought to be the people you live with and just keep it that way. It's it's not worth the risk of infecting your family members what about this whole, and I'm, gosh, we even recorded some video messages with you about the important, the importance back in July of wearing a mask. And, and obviously that's one of these key things that, that is also being recommended in addition to maintaining the physical distancing. Yeah. 
I always wear my mask when I'm out in a store. You know, I take it off as I leave, but, you know, I'm always wearing a mask because I, you know, like I said, I don't know if I have it and I'm exposed every day. And I don't want to take the chance that, you know, hey, somebody I stopped and talked to ends up with it and then ends up in my ICU. You know, I'm, I'm very careful about that stuff. And, you know, I always use the alcohol sanitizer. And, you know, when I'm talking to my neighbor next door, I, I keep my distance from him. So, you know, I'm, I'm following the guidelines as best I can. <laughs> <laughs> but if you would uh, talk about the, I remember you're sharing a story that was so vivid in my mind was, was the the inf- when you go in to take care of a patient with COVID, just all of the precautions you you as nurses and staff that take care of these patients directly have to take to get in there. Walk us through what that's like and what you have to do. Well, we we have what's called a papper. It's a, a motor that attaches via a belt that pumps air through a HEPA filter. So that's the little tube that people might see on TV that goes kind of behind yeah. your head down to your to your back. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you got to put the belt on and turn the motor on and hook it up to your hood and put the hood on. And then you got to put the gown on. You got to put the gloves on. And, you know, that's just to go in the room. You know, you do what you have to do in the room. And as you leave, it gets even worse because you've got to clean everything that you just put on. You know, you throw away the gown, or actually, we have ones that they're washing now. And you throw away your gloves and your alcohol, and then you take wipes, sanitizing wipes, and you have to wipe down your hood, you have to wipe down the motor, you've got to wipe down all the tubing, and then you can go back to being a nurse and and working on your computer and doing your charting. So, you know, and it takes time. And hopefully, you know, somebody isn't crashing at that moment, and, you know, we have to put it all back on again real quick and get back in the room because as as healthcare workers, we're not going to take the chance of going in a room COVID positive, and trying to resuscitate a patient without protection. So it's almost like what I would envision as a firefighter when they go to a call, they're, you know, they put on their stuff, their suits to go get in the truck to go fight a fire. Is that kind of what it's equivalent to? Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, it's, I don't know that it's as dangerous, but yeah, it's, it's <laughs> dangerous and we have to have the protection on. All right, we got a couple of minutes left, and you know, I, I, I want to have you do two things. One, reflect on what the past nine months has been like for you, and and, and I want, I not only want you to to maybe address maybe the difficult moment, but what about what are the rewarding moments of of if you look back on this, go, my goodness, I could write a heck of a book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, re- rewarding moments. Um... It's the ingenuity of the nurses to, you know, come up with ways around things to make them work that, you know, improves the the care for the patients. You know, it's the Zoom calls that we connect families with because, of course, families can't come back to COVID rooms. So, you know, and it's, you know, seeing the smile on the face on somebody, you know, who's talking with their family for the first time in God knows how long, you know, we We've come up with great ways to, you know, get get around some of the isolation of, of being a COVID patient. And, you know, as far as nurses, we've found out ways to, you know, kind of get around having to go in the room so often. You know, we're clustering our care. We're, we're being very careful about, you know, what we're doing when. 
you know. And honestly, we've we've got teams set up for we do what's called um, um, pronating and supinating patients. We turn them on their bellies, and we've got it down now, and we're good at it. I mean, we get six people in the room, boom, 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 and they're flipped over. You know, we've done some great things, and we're really it's impressive how our survival rate has changed from when this first first started. You know, uh, the problem is we're still seeing a lot of people long term. They've been on there for on the vents for a long time, and they just some of them don't seem to get any better. Well, Brad Pryor, thank you so much to you and all your colleagues. You are heroes. It's used kind of loosely, but in this case, uh, you have been for nine months. Thanks to you and your team, and stay safe and be healthy, and happy holidays. Brad Pryor, ICU nurse at Cadillac, back with more after this. You're listening to Cadillac On Call on 610 KONA. This program provides general information only. Any comments or information presented are strictly for educational purposes. Cadillac and 610 KONA do not endorse any of the suggestions made by the presenter or callers. Now back to Cadillac On Call. Once again, Jim Hall. The COVID-19 pandemic has certainly impacted lives in so many different ways. And for people who are dealing with debilitating illness and who are in age groups that might be like mine, a little bit older, uh, oftentimes that has meant they've not been able to attend some very important uh, therapy sessions, whether they're in person, uh, physical therapy type sessions or support group type meetings for people recovering from illness. And so tonight we wanted to bring on Karen Hayes, who is the Community Health Programs Manager at Cadillac Regional Medical Center. And Cadillac for years has offered a wide array of support groups here in the Tri-Cities on a number of different ailments. And I know Karen has been a key part of those. And and I wanted to have Karen come on and talk a little bit about them and how you are making do and the kinds of things you're able to do to help connect with people of varying uh, needs, Karen. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you, Jim. Thanks for having me. Yes, our in-person support groups, they stopped meeting uh, in March, and most now have transitioned to meeting virtually. And that is a bit of a challenge for um, our support group participants, but the ones that are really giving it an earnest try and are participating virtually or by phone you know, continue to get so much out of it as they connect with others who are in similar situations. Maybe give our listeners a a view under normal circumstances. If things weren't in a pandemic state, how many support groups does Cadillac offer? Well, we have 14 in-person support groups when they were meeting in person. And then also we had an art expressions group and then a Parkinson's dance that met as well. And so now we have 12 support groups that are going virtually. Our post-polio group is not meeting. That's a very small number of, of folks, and they're connecting just by phone individually. And our ALS support group is a collaboration with the ALS Association. And so they're facilitating that group virtually. But we have um, support groups for caregivers, uh, for those living with Alzheimer's or dementia. We have a caregivers group uh, specifically for men. And then we have another caregivers group for people who are caring for someone with any um, disorder or illness. 
And we have a chronic pain support group. And we also have a frontal temporal dementia support group, which is a very specific type of dementia. Um, and their caregivers really are dealing with um, some really challenging um, conditions. So that group is really going strong, even virtually. Um, we also have an MS support group, multiple sclerosis. We have uh, Parkinson's disease, pulmonary, stroke, and traumatic brain injury. Well, I'm just so impressed, one, of the breadth of these programs, and two, virtually all of them are still able to meet in one way or another, albeit virtually. But, you know, I think what we've learned through this pandemic is that ability to stay connected to our loved ones, and I guess that's all the more important for people in any of those conditions that meet in support groups that you just addressed. Yeah, you know, the most important thing, whether in person, virtually, over the phone, is really to be able to connect with somebody to know that you are not alone in the circumstances that you're facing. What does it mean um, for these the, the people that participate in these? I know you have facilitators who are real-world, I'm meaning people that have suffered these various ailments that le- lead these groups many times, but... But as, a, as someone who helps put these on and the team and of all the therapists that, that work with these patients from, from day to week to month to year, uh, it's got to be very rewarding for you. You know, it is. I actually talked to one of the support group leaders um, earlier this week, and it was for the frontal temporal dementia support group. And that's a support group that's probably our newest. And that started as a result of our caregiver conference in 2019 that was still in person. And I happened to talk with two women who had um, spouses with frontal temporal dementia. And they didn't know each other, but they were both telling me just about the same story. And so I connected them there at the caregiver conference. And um, the woman I talked to the other day said that it has changed her life to have that connection with somebody who understands and that they can learn from each other. So that is extremely rewarding. And do you think there's a lesson for all of us to learn out of this pandemic that, you know, that we're not able to see our loved ones, our parents, our aunts, our uncles, our, our friends who are, who, are, who are maybe more isolated than, than we are, that it's important to stay connected? You know, it's, so important to stay connected, and it's probably even more important to stay connected when you don't feel like staying connected. You know, so if you're thinking, "Oh, I don't want to participate in a support group," you know, I, you know, I had a stroke, or my dad had a stroke, and I, I don't need that. You know, reconsider that and figure out. Uh, give us a call and see how you can uh, connect virtually or by phone, or, you know, if you're not ready for a support group yet, you can still call us um, and get information and education about disorders and and really get support one-on-one via the phone. And that number is 509-943-8455. That's 509-943-8455, and someone can direct you to any one of those 14 support groups or at least provide that information on, on what's available. And do they meet all throughout the different times of the month uh, during during the day, I think, right, mostly? Yes, most of them are during the day, yes. 
And you could Google and get our community health transmitter. Um, if you put in Catholic and community health transmitter, our newsletter will pop up, and that has the calendar of support groups and educational programs. And also call that phone number if you would like to get that mail to your home, because it's a it's a wonderful publication that has great information, as Karen mentioned, including a calendar list of all of when those support groups occur uh, throughout the time each month. I, I would like to have you uh, address before we let you go, Karen, just a concluding comment for our listeners, because in the next segment, we're going to zero in on the pulmonary support group uh, with someone who has quite a story to tell, who we've told this story a few years ago, and it's a great one, but he is one of these people leading these support groups. So a lot of these are people who've been in these situations, right? Yes, there's a variety. A good portion of them are people who have either been caregiving or people who are living with a particular disorder. There are a few that are led by, you know, Catholic staff or our community health staff. But yes, there are people that really understand the disorder or the situation that um, that group is um, living with. One final question, and you touched on one of the groups deals with the caregivers themselves and talk a little bit of real quickly before we let you go of how important that is that the people providing the care to the, some of these uh, patients uh, that they have help. You know, I've led, I led a caregiver support group for about 10 years. And the thing that I heard over and over again was that they felt the freedom to say things in that group that they could not say to anyone else. And that alone was very helpful and therapeutic. Karen Hayes. The, safe, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. To have a safe place to say something that you might not say to someone else. Well, they are all wonderful programs, and we appreciate the work that you and your team do. Karen Hayes, Manager of Community Health Programs at Cadillac. And again, if you'd like information on any of those support groups, you can call 509-943-8455. Back with the remaining minutes of Cadillac on Call right after this. You're listening to Cadillac on Call on 610-KONA. This program is not a substitute for direct consultation with your own health care provider. Always consult your health care provider for your specific condition, especially if you have or suspect you may have a medical problem. Now back to Cadillac on Call. Here again, Jim Hall. If you are interested in any of the 14 support groups offered by Cadillac Regional Medical Center, you can call 509-943-8455. And one of those support groups is what's called the Pulmonary Rehabilitation Support Group. And the leader of that group speaks from what he uh, knows. He's a double lung transplant recipient. And I understand Paul Hilliard, who joins us by the phone, you're coming up on an anniversary, sir. Yeah, it'll be my three-year anniversary on November 30th. And tell our listeners what that actually means. Well, I got a new set of lungs on November 30th, uh, three years ago, and I was literally in the hospital on a high-flow breathing machine because I didn't have home equipment that could keep me alive. And I was in the hospital for about a month waiting for um, a transplant donor um, and, and so they, they got one for me and, uh, we did have a dry run about the middle of the month, but, um, yeah, I was down to my last breath and, uh, I wouldn't have made it much, much more than another couple of weeks on the equipment, but they, uh, 
University of Washington, and my doctors here at Cadillac are a great team, and they kept me alive. So, so what you're saying, you, uh, quickly, a dry run would be something like, was it a candidate that ended up not being a match, but you had to be ready to go? Yeah, they'll they'll take you in and they'll prep you for surgery. Um, they don't cut you open yet, and then the doctors um, check. They have a machine they can put the lungs in, and they can um, see if they're if they're okay or not. And if they think they can they can work, um, they will come in and tell you, hey, these lungs might be damaged, or they'll come in and say no. Uh, they're not viable. They won't tell you what's wrong. They'll just say not viable. So that's what's called a dry run. Wow. Emotionally, uh, it just it, must be amazing. Um, it's a, you know, you get your hopes up and your prayers up so much and you, you have your family come racing in, you know, and then all of a sudden, you know, the nurse comes in and and the doctor comes in and says, you know, these lungs aren't good for you. And, uh, you know, well, you, yeah, it's it's an emotional roller coaster. So on the higher end of that roller coaster, though, when you got that transplant, you mentioned you almost have to be at your last breath in order to, in essence, I hate to use the words qualify, but what was it like once you got them, and your, what was your first recollection when you came out of surgery? So my first recollection coming out of uh, the anesthesia, this um, respiratory nurse, was telling me I needed to cough. And I remember looking at her and telling her with just tears in my eyes saying, I can't, I, you know, my brain was still thinking I had bad lungs. And, you know, part of the, the uh, rehabilitation that you go through, you know, is to learn what your body can do. And, and I didn't think I could breathe. Um, my brain didn't th- think I could. And so, they were trying to get me to cough to uh, fill the lungs. And uh, anyways, I remember my mind saying, no, you can't do this, you know. So it was a, And then once I could breathe or once they, they, they got me breathing, uh, it was just such an energizing breath. It was just really amazing. And three years later, you're, you're leading a support group. Uh, on this. So you're, you're wanting to give back, aren't you? Yeah. Um, I saw there was a need in the community and I saw how many people are, who are dealing with pulmonary fibrosis and other, you know, lung issues here in the community. And I, you know, I felt so grateful to just be alive that I wanted to be able to help others out and so I do the support group here at Cadillac, and then we've done some educational seminars. And I also um, am an ambassador for the uh, Pulmonary Fibrosis Foundation in Chicago. And uh, they fly me to different locations to talk to people and educate them about the disease. And uh, so, yeah, I try to help out as much as I can. So talk to our listeners uh, if they might need this participation in this group of what they need to do. I know you're having to do it virtually, and obviously some of the most uh, at-risk people would be people with lung disorders due to COVID. But talk about what you're doing to connect with folks. So at Cadillac, we've um, 
we are working with a, a computer program and uh, uh, team meetings on Microsoft. And we have a great gal. Her name is Megan, and she coordinates it. So if somebody wanted to attend, she will Megan will send them an email with a link. And then the first Thursday of each month um, at 10 o'clock, we, we all sign in and um, Megan is there to help us in the, and help people if they're having troubles on their computer or, you know, need to set settings or whatever. She's really great at that. And, and then, you know, it pops up on your computer. It's really not hard. I mean, if I can do it, anybody can do it, <laughs> but, we, but uh, it's Megan is there to help us out. And, um, uh, Anyways, we have great conversations. We try to, um, you know, focus on what the needs of the community is. And uh, last month's meeting, we spent probably 45 minutes talking about coughing and how to how to um, deal with that and not get get into an anxiety attack. And uh, it was, you know, very. We, we pull up articles. We talk about different things that work that other people have tried. So everybody gets involved. We have and, about 30 uh, seconds left, and I would like to, if you would, I always like to leave our program on a on an optimistic note, and certainly we're entering the holiday season. We're being asked to have different kinds of holiday seasons. But for somebody who's been what you've been through, obviously what we're all going through as a country and a world with this pandemic Maybe some perspective for all of us from somebody in your shoes as we enter the holiday season. Give us 30 seconds. Uh, I wish everyone to be safe this holiday season. Uh, with this COVID disease out there, it's, you know, you don't recover from any lung disease or lung illness. These are real diseases. Um, and with COVID being so contagious, everyone be safe. Well said, Paul Hilliard, Pulmonary Rehabilitation Support Group Leader for Catholic Regional Medical Center, a double lung transplant recipient. Happy anniversary, three years on November 30th. And again, if you are interested in any of the support groups offered at Catholic, the phone number to call, 509-943-8455. Our thanks to all of our guests this evening, and you please be safe. Talk to you soon.